Well, a Merry Christmas to you all. I don't know about you, but I've just been blown away this morning. And I pity the the folk who don't know what Christmas is all about. Who really don't understand. Um, you know, you stop and think about it. What is it? We we've got gathered so much around Christmas. You know, we've gathered the the gifts and the toys and the the family and the friends and the good food and Santa and snow and really is that Christmas? Is it about purchasing stuff for people we don't really like? With, with money we don't have. Stuff that they'll probably never use and as like as not they'll try to return. Is it merely a celebration of the winter solstice? And you begin to wonder because we almost never sing Jingle Bells or Frosty the Snowman, or Let It Snow, after Christmas. Think about it. How often do you hear those tunes on the radio after Christmas? And they have nothing, absolutely nothing. They don't even mention Christmas. There's got to be something more. I've been pondering this event that today celebrates for a couple of months now. And the more I think about it, the more astounded I get. David shared with us a different translation of these familiar words from Philippians 2. But just think about them again. Think about this description of the Lord Jesus. Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our faith rests on two dramatic and unrepeatable events. Two historical events. Events so improbable that for some people the whole thing is preposterous. 
That's especially true for the person who is committed to philosophical naturalism. The idea that the only things that can exist are those that can be seen or measured in some manner. Like the Sadducees of the New Testament, for these people, there is no such thing as a spirit. Therefore, God Himself cannot exist. To these people, only matter, space, and time exist, and they are controlled by the laws of physics and chemistry. That's it. That's all. But these two dramatic and unrepeatable events, historical events. Well, for one, there's the resurrection of Jesus. For all the time that humanity has existed, Only one person. Only Jesus can claim to have come back to life days after He died and come back to life without external agency. And our faith in Him is grounded on that fact. He died. He rose. He was seen. He talked with. He ate with. His friends. And those friends went to their deaths, many of them by torture, refusing to recant their story. That's a pretty powerful witness. And as Paul put it, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. Now, we've, you've heard me talk about the, the evidence that supports our contention that Jesus is risen. And we just don't have time this morning to go over it all again. But just suffice to say, there is good and sufficient reason, good and sufficient evidence to make a very compelling case for the resurrection of Jesus. But the other equally dramatic and totally unrepeatable event the one we celebrate today is the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. This event also poses insurmountable problems for those who are committed to the non-existence of God. But once we're willing to acknowledge the existence of a God powerful enough to create all that exists, there's no reason to suppose that such a God could not intervene in human history in such a way as to cause a young, unmarried, sexually pure woman to conceive. And this is indeed the God who is presupposed on every page of the Bible, the God who has been worshipped and served and feared in every sense of the word by human beings since the creation of the world. Matthew, in chapter 1 of his Gospel, reports it this way. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now we read this today and fairly easily nod in agreement that it makes sense that God would do something like this. Problems begin to surface when we read the passage in Isaiah that, uh, that Matthew is quoting. And uh, you, if you try to read Isaiah chapter 7, there's something, I don't know, it, it jars. Um, chapter 7 begins with this, like this, uh, fairly typical Old Testament passage. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, that's the prophet, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and share Jashub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. What? What are you talking about? Well, between 740 and 732 B.C., Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel tried to force King Ahaz of Judah to join their military alliance against the growing threat of Assyria. When Ahaz refused, they invaded Judah with the intention of setting up a puppet king who would do as they wished. But rather than trusting God to help, as Isaiah had counseled, his words, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. I I, I love the description of these two kings. These two Smoldering stumps of firebrands. Uh, eh, but Ahaz appeared, appealed to Assyria for help. And then Isaiah issued God's sign proclamation, and this is where things get interesting. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Okay. If that, refers, if that passage refers to, only to Jesus, how does a sign, a child that's born 700 years later, become a sign to Ahaz? It doesn't work. At least it doesn't work for me. But remember, as you're reading your Bible, chapter and verse divisions are late additions. They were not part of the text. And the narrative continues on. And in chapter 8 and verse 3, Isaiah and his wife have a child, a son. Uh, and the, the word of the, of the Lord here continues to proclaim that this is the guy who would witness the demise of the northern kingdom of Israel and of Syria. But like many prophecies in Scripture, this prophecy has a double fulfillment. In the lifetime of Ahaz, the son, of, the son that was born to a young woman, that is, Isaiah's wife, did indeed witness the fall of these two kingdoms. And then about 730 or 740 years later, give or take, the Virgin Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit as the second fulfillment of this word. But in between, some interesting things happen. You get a 700 and some odd year gap. About 500 years after Isaiah issued this prophecy, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. And Matthew, like most of the writers of the New Testament, quoted the Greek Bible, the Greek Hebrew, the Greek Old Testament. Now, if you know something, if you know more than one language, you know the problems of translation. Um, you can't just, you, most often, you cannot just do a word-for-word -word substitution and have it make sense. Idiom just doesn't translate nicely. Um, and here, the word, the Hebrew word used to describe the mother of this boy primarily means a young woman of marriageable age. It says nothing specifically about her sexual status, although it would normally be assumed that a young unmarried woman would be a virgin. Um, same kind of association we use, we use, say, high school students and teenagers almost interchangeably because most teenagers are high school students, most high school students are teenagers. Right? It works. Um, so, it's not surprising that when the Hebrew was being translated into Greek. Greek doesn't have a word that translates exactly the way the Hebrew does. The Greek scholars conveyed 
what the Bible scholars of that day understood to be the sense of the package, of the passage. Remember, it's 500 years now as, as elapsed. So they reflected their expectation of a second fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy when they chose to translate the Hebrew word for young woman using the Greek word for virgin. And I think in this sense, in this case, this translation was inspired. Why is it important? What difference does it make? Though, whether Jesus was conceived of, by a virgin or in the normal course of events as the son of a married couple. Think about this. The virgin conception and birth of Jesus points to his divinity, to his being God. And we discussed this before, um, how Jesus claimed in, almost in so many words that he is God. Now, it's possible that God could intervene in human history in any number of ways. In fact, before the birth of Jesus, He had... I mean, you read the Old Testament. How many times? Dozens, hundreds of times, God had intervened in human history. He had sent His messengers in many ways, many times... But it's significant that Jesus was born to a virgin. The supernatural God of the universe came into the world in a supernatural way that retained His sinlessness. Had Jesus been born of two fallen human beings, He would have inherited the same sin problem that plagues all of us as descendants of David. But Jesus entered the world untouched by human sin so that He could serve as our Savior, as our Redeemer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The virgin conception and birth of Jesus points to His humanity as well. He became one of us. And as, the Hebrew, as Hebrews reminds us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are. Yes, without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was fully human. He experienced what we experience. He was tempted the same ways we are tempted. And 2,000 years of so-called development of civilization, hasn't changed that in any way. And yet, he remained sinless. And his sinlessness is absolutely essential to our salvation. 
But another thing that the virgin conception of and birth of Jesus does is that it paints a picture of the nature of God's grace. It was God who took the initiative. It was by God's power and provision that Jesus was conceived and born. And this is the point that where I've been musing this last couple of months. That Jesus, God, the Eternal Son, would choose to come. I mean, that's mind-boggling enough. But then He would choose to come with the intention of redeeming the likes of us, even at the cost of His own life. That He would choose to set aside all the glory and prerogatives of heaven. That He would choose to come in weakness, in dependency, as a baby. That He would choose not just any baby, but a baby born in poverty, away from home. I mean, think about this. Mary and Joseph had nothing much going for them at that point. But Jesus chose to come under circumstances like that. But that's what grace is all about. Not only does the living God call you to Himself, but He makes the way for us to come. It has absolutely nothing to do with what I can offer. Nothing to do with what I am or what I can do. Still less to do with anything either good or evil that I have done. Grace is all about who God is. It's all about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And unlike Santa, who according to tradition and legend, only gives gifts to those who deserve them, God gives His most precious, most incredible gift to the very ones who do not, who cannot ever deserve it. There's another gift under the tree. And it's got your name on it. Have you received it? Have you unwrapped it? Made it your own? Let's pray and then the team will come up with another musical selection. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. And we cannot do more than thank You because You have done what we could not have imagined. 
You have done the very thing that we needed. And yet we could not have imagined how You would do it. Or when. Or where. Nor even why. But You have given us this precious, perfect gift of Your beloved Son. And we thank You, Father. We thank You And we thank You for these uh, tokens that we have received this morning, the bread and the wine. Remembrances of the, the terrible death that our Savior died in our place. And we give You our thanks. And Lord, we continue to to place ourselves in Your hands. Do with us according to Your most perfect will. Help us to be responsive and obedient. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you very much, uh, Ted, for those thoughts this morning reminding us of indeed that other gift that we have for us. We'll sing a song, we'll sing a song of Bethlehem. Maybe just remain seated and sing, thinking about what Ted has spoken about this morning and about as we sing the song of the life of Jesus, we can remember that gift for us. Father, it is with great awe that we think of the, the tremendous miracles that you've done to intervene on our behalf especially for this one of sending your son and who came to live among us and die for us and rise again. As we've been reminded today, we pray as we go forth in his name that you would bless us and help us to spread that joyful message to the world around. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.